What's up, fellow Defenders? It's Chris, one of your hosts for Defenders TV Podcast, and this is Defenders TV Podcast episode 128, where we are talking about The Punisher, season 1, episode 7, Crosshairs. Welcome back, fellow defenders. It is I, your wandering war journal journalist in the field. I am back. Uh, I've already told you I'm back in the last episode, <laughs> but I'm back again. And here I am talking about Defenders TV podcast, episode 128, where we are looking at The Punisher, season one, episode seven, Crosshairs. And right now, you're all in my crosshairs because I love this episode. Guys, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Yes, and I am your third and final host, rounding out the group, John. And a very, very happy Christmas and happy holidays to our fellow defenders. Yes, Merry Christmas, one and all. Yes, and what a Christmas has been. Like Much like the characters in here, if you like batteries or car cables or jumper cables, whichever you shall call them, everyone's hopeful presence comes true, including castles. Yes, <laughs> I'm hopefully getting a pink Ruger in uh, Wrapped Up. <laughs> it will certainly offset the blue in your eyes, that's all I can say. <laughs> Why, thank you, um, Chris. You're welcome. So if you were joining us for the first time, welcome. Welcome one and all. Uh, this is Defenders TV Podcast, where we look at all of your favourite Netflix Marvel shows. In particular, this episode, we are looking at The Punisher Crosshairs, Episode 7. And guys, it's fantastic to have you here. And why not come over to our Facebook group, talk to us, tell us your thoughts, Give us your feedback, and you can do that by going to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV Podcast, or why not put your dulcet tones all over the airways with us by going to DefendersTVPodcast.com and going and leaving us a voicemail, or if you don't like giving us your voice, that's fine, we find that we don't want to hear it anyway. But you can even <laughs> put it on and send us an email by going to feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com. But guys, I'm a bit excited about this episode. I want to talk about it. So really, Chris, I think we need to get into it. Yes, exactly. Hopefully you've put your Frank Sinatra off. You've got your mulled wine and mince pies, the roaring fires going, the stockings are bulging with tangerines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you are... About to sit back, relax, get slightly squiffy off the mulled wine, but listen to our lovely dulcet tones this Christmas. Yes. So, Derek, with that note, in the style of Frank Sinatra, or maybe some other Christmas crooner, 
Um, what are some of the episode details? Well, Frank Snatcher was a bit of a gangster, so I suppose he'd fit into Frank Castle's world as well, <laughs> didn't he? Um, now, this episode was written by Bruce Marshall Romans. First time in Marvel. Again, another another new staffer over on uh, over on the Punisher shows. They got a lot of new talent into these shows. Um, he's probably most noticeable as a staff writer and story editor over on Hell on Wheels. Uh, a very different show to this one, but it was about a former Union soldier returning from war. So, some similarities. Uh, and he was involved in about 30 episodes of that show. Uh, this episode was directed by a Marvel alumni, Andy Goddard, directed this episode. Uh, he did episode three of the series of The Punisher. He also did Iron Fist episode 12, Bar the Big Boss, Daredevil season two, episode six, Regrets Only, and Luke Cage episode seven, Manifest. Likes the episode sevens there as well, doesn't he? John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this episode? Sure. In the aftermath of O'Connor's death, Lewis struggles with the ramifications of his actions. As his father, concerned at the state of his son, desperately seeks to provide any help he can, Lewis begins a descent down a much darker path. Back at the bunker, Frank and Micro pursue another face from the past, as Frank sets out to target Morty Bennett, one of the founders of Operation Cerberus and one of Rawlins' allies in the heroin smuggling plot. Madani and Stein go bug hunting after they suspect her office has been bugged. Sam stages a cover to find whoever is listening. As Frank and Micro develop their plan, Rawlin sets in motion a plan of his own to trap his former subordinate. However, Micro and Frank remain one step ahead as Micro has Frank keep Bennett long enough for the recon drone to clone his phone and track down Rawlins. After saving Bennett, Russo shows true loyalty to the operation, killing Bennett in an attempt to clean up any loose ends. Meanwhile, Frank arrives at Rawlins' base and lines up the sniper crosshairs on Rawlins at the window. Following Frank's words, one batch, two batch, penny and dime, his sniper shot rings out from the tree line, followed by a distinctive crack of bulletproof glass that spreads around the head of Frank's intended target. The shot has hit its mark, but not its target. As the lights go up and the alarms go off, Frank flees for his life. And flees for his life he does. And what a beautiful synopsis we just got there. But I really want to get in and start talking about our war journal. If you're joining us for the first time, this is where we take our five biggest case notes that we saw in tonight's episode and digest them, dissect them, and do everything we can to give you our views. On to point number one. He's an informant. He's a lover. He's a killer. Oh, our boy Russo has changed a lot in seven episodes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Why is it that pretty people rule the world? Um, Absolutely. I think uh, Stein really put it in one. We're all that shallow, John. We're all that shallow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, he takes issue with uh, Dina involving Russo because presumably he's good between the sheets. Yeah, he calls out the fact that Russo's a civilian. So why would she involve him other than that their relationship's getting too close. But uh, she is very clear about it. She knows to involve Russo because he's Frank's best friend. And if anybody knows where Frank is, it would be Russo, right? Yeah, no, look, I'm really enjoying, in the short space of time, what they've done to the character. Mm-hmm. Like, he's been the best friend. He's been, it's all been going so well. And then they flipped it within, what, 40 minutes of, like, from when they kind of started showing that he wasn't to the this end of this episode. Mm-hmm. And we really see the true Russo, the calculating, the con- I wouldn't go conniving, but the very calculating uh, kind of character that he is. And that scene where he's sitting with 
uh, Agent Orange Rollins mm-hmm. and kind of going through his, not even his side of it, you really get to see in that discussion that he's not a subservient character to Rollins in a way. He's able to stand on his own side and then that takes a new light when we see him interacting with Dinah, like in that room where he's like, well, I'm done. And he tries to kiss her and he's really playing the informant, the lover, like so well. And then that, that scene at the end was just fantastic. Absolutely. We really see, you see why he was special forces. Yeah. You see him in that very much anti-castle kind of, he, he is the antithesis to, to Frank. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. I love how cheeky Rousseau is in this episode, though. That whole thing where he's talking to Dinah and then his mind wanders and she goes, what are you thinking about? And he's like, you know what I'm thinking about. <laughs> and then when he's talking to Rollins and, and he goes, you probably slept with her, didn't you? And he goes, uh, yeah, of course I did. Have you seen her? <laughs> you know? He's just so cheeky and there's something so charming about Rousseau. But again, yeah, he does do some very brutal things in this episode. The fact that he's leading the, the force in the protection of uh, of Morty Bennett, you can again tell his special forces. And then, yeah, as we get into the end of the episode, there's there's definitely some uh, a much more serious side to what he does. But he's still very playful with it. He does seem to have survived very well after the war. Yeah, and he knows exactly what uh, Dina now knows about mm. Frank Castle as well. I mean, you know, little does she know that um, she's in uh, really quite a dangerous place. You know, she still thinks. In some ways, and this is the skill of Russo, he's almost like a spy, mm-hmm. um, not just special forces. That it's, you know, he's he's putting on this persona to her. He puts on the persona to Frank. He puts on the persona to Curtis. He is like Yanis. You know, he ha- has multiple faces um, really here. And it, it's great to see so many people still are absolutely in the dark. Uh, and they still are at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, only really poor Morty understands maybe what Russo is and is about, uh, you know, and that's probably a reminder from when he was in the field. But even in those flashbacks, you see him with a fairly casual, laid-back kind of feel with Frank. So is it always um, has been like this with Russo? Mm-hmm. You know, he... he buries deep down actually who he is uh, in, in all kind of situations. So what you're saying is Ben Barnes for Bond, right? Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting character. I know exactly what you mean, John. Yeah. I'm really interested to see what more there is to the Russo character because, um, and I'm going to jump on to one of our other points, but he actually is the, he's the person who tips off Dinah to the book mm-hmm. he he he's the one if you think about it goes it's not like anyone's listening smiles and then exits the office yeah and it seems very off off-handed comments to make like he's he, as a joke mm-hmm. it's great but then when you think about it and now that we know and we're going to talk in a second about this bug hunting piece but he's the one who did it he tipped her off so he has another game against Rollins, perhaps. That's interesting, yeah. So yeah, to go on to point two, yeah, I, I think I just thought of it as a cheeky Russo comment, the kind of comment that he would think that Dina would pay no mind to at all. She picks up the fact that she's being tapped or being bugged because of the fact that the death of Gunnar Henderson happened so quickly after 
they discovered who he was. So um, so she realizes that her room must be bugged because there's no way anybody outside of that very small circle of herself and Ben Stein would have known about Gunnar Henderson at that specific moment. So not that nobody would have known about him, but it's within one day of them finding out that Gunnar Henderson is found dead. So um, so yeah, that's why she realizes. Yeah, that you, re- you really see her mind sort of processing the information with that that wall of um, evidence photographs uh, that she's looking at. Mm. And, and maybe it is that it's that cheeky off the cuff remark from, from Russo, which has suddenly got a thinking, is someone listening in here? You know, mm-hmm. myself and Stein are talking about Gunnar Henderson in the office. Um, the next day, this death squad, um, you know, and, storm of gunfire occurs in the woods uh, and Gunnar Henderson is now dead we identified him and now he's dead um, and I love how then it's kind of it moves um, to the corridor conversations of Stein and, and Dina oh, I love this. and yep. you know Stein here is just really, really in good form. Where he's like, uh, can, can we, we not speak in your office where there's really nice, comfy, uh, armchairs? Uh, do we need to do it here out in, in the corridor? Uh-huh. Like, and then, you know, later on, after they've found the, the little bug, you know, with the wire, I mean, yeah. Ikea furniture, you know, you wouldn't have got that with a, a solidly constructed piece of wood shelving. Um, but certainly, you know, they're, they're then down, really kind of just trying to go through how they've got it and how they will deal with this uh, with with a nice flask of whiskey, mm-hmm. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested to see if that tip from Billy, or the offhand comment, it's not really a tip, how that changes the dynamic now for those two going forward. Because mm-hmm. um, that could be really interesting. Um, the corridor chit chat I found hilarious. I just loved, especially when people were walking by, they smile and nod and talk. And then she makes the joke or starts telling them the story of how some guy had placed his hand on her posterior. And he kind of goes, was that really a story? He goes, yeah, I broke his hand. He goes, yeah, I expected as much. Uh-huh. <laughs> like it was just a really fun interaction, but they discovering that bug, it actually now makes me kind of go okay what's next now Mm -hmm. how now that they know that their operation has been compromised yeah like how how big will this become will they internalize it just the two of them not knowing who or will this then kind of blow up to something bigger so homeland security versus the cia versus frank castle the great thing here is it places stein and madani's uh story Right in jeopardy, you know, they realize they're being, um, listened into, they're being tapped, mm-hmm. um, but it, it places them right in, in the eye of the storm of what's going on between Frank, Micro, and Rawlins and, and Frank's story. And they have to really now see what they're going to do with that. As you say, Chris, you know, how does this work for, for them moving forwards? But it, it's really good. I wonder if there's going to be some kind of moment were possibly Russo's comment to her, as you say, Chris, uh, comes back to haunt him because, you know, when she's going through and processing these things, maybe she has that moment of of realisation that it ties in with another slip that Russo has maybe done uh, with her. 
when you said that, was it purely off the cuff or was it just, you know, this own private joke that he was having, mm-hmm. knowing that her office was bugged uh, and that links in with some other evidence. But yeah, a really uh, nice development to to these two. And yes, yeah, Stein in the corridor, I thought was hilarious. Really enjoyed him. Well, it's got to make them question every single conversation they've had in her office since she moved to Homeland Security, right? So effectively she has to think this bug was placed before she arrived there so now they got to know what they talked about in that office did they talk about frank very often are they the ones that tipped agent orange and russo off to the fact that frank's still alive they are and now they know it so what else have they said in that office that could compromise them yeah yeah really 100 percent. and i questioned at the end of the our last episode uh, i kind of called her a peripheral character uh, storyline. I'm not sure how it was going to weave further into the overall. Mm-hmm. And this is how. This was the straw that broke the camel's back in the storyline. Mm-hmm. In a good way. This fully embeds the Stein-Dana storyline within the Frank versus Rollins storyline. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to have to pick a side. This will go against them as being lawmakers but they will know that Frank's not the one, after a time we assume they'll understand that Frank was not the one who bugged them, but then the government agency is the one who bugged them, and that will set, it'd be an interesting dynamic to see these two characters who are high performing, uh, homeland security agents going against, in theory, other national agencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And what did you think of that moment when Stein kind of called out what we've been talking about in a few of our episodes to Dinah, where he calls out the fact that she's very like Frank in her tenacity in going after the people that she's trying to find and trying to protect Frank as well. So what did you think of that kind of dynamic between the two of them? I thought it was really good. I mean, I think, you know, there is that reflection of Frank in her in, in that sense, she's about justice. Mm-hmm. She's about truth. It's the reason why she is going after Frank initially, and this 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 whole execution squad of the U.S. military, um, because you know there's something really bad at the heart of it. Um, she doesn't know the full picture. All she knows is it centers around Frank. She needs to do something about it. It's what Frank does. Their methods are different. Their drive is the same, I think. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really nice call from Stein to, to see that, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, moving us on, guys, uh, let's talk about Operation Morty. <laughs> and I'm not talking about Rick and Morty. No. It's our good old friend, Morty Bennett. He is back with a vengeance. And oh, do we see so much of him. <laughs> Absolutely. He certainly likes his role play and um, Saturday night entertainment for sure mm-hmm. in this um, what a character. I mean, you know, he's kind of the third part of this triangle between Russo uh, and Rawlins. And he is that kind of groveling, slightly snivelly. And he's the medical guy from uh, Kandahar, from Afghanistan, who has been, you know, rapidly promoted up the chain here. He was, mm. you know, has gone from stuffing packets of heroin into the dead bodies of fallen soldiers to now running his own kind of base. Uh, and this is all down to um, his involvement with Rawlins and Russo. But he now is being targeted by Frank and Micro. Yeah. Uh, and, you know... I love how this all plays out as well, that 
you you see this moment of Rawlins and Russo just talking about Frank, and you can see this brainstorming session between them, and it's like. If you were to go after anyone, it would be Morty Bennett. You know, he has the instinct of a rat uh, and the courage of a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even though they don't necessarily know when or where, they kind of pinpoint it would be this Saturday night. You know, what's his routine? They kind of do exactly the same process as Micro and Frank. Exactly. And so then they lay this trap. Uh, what they don't know is that they are in a sense, a few steps ahead, or they think they are at this stage. And Frank calls this out to, to Micro going, you know, are we being too smart for our own good? You know, Frank really just wanted to kill Morty Bennett. He wanted to put him down whilst he was there. Mm-hmm. But Micro persuades him otherwise to take the time so that they can clone his his mobile phone so that then they can track him and they can track him to hopefully where Rawlins is. And again, Rawlins, Russo, they have the same kind of field um, perspective and, and thought processes and intelligence as Frank. And in a sense, they predict what is going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, even down to the fact that, you know, I think Rawlins knows at that moment that Frank will come after him in his mansion, in that CIA agency safe house. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think there's a really good point there with with Morty. Obviously, he is the third member of the of the team with Schoonover originally and uh, Rollins. Uh, he definitely was the brains of that operation. It was more he had the opportunity and he was delivering what uh, Rollins and Schoonover wanted to happen in return for all the money he was going to get. Uh, I like the moment where they talk about at the end uh, sending him off like they'd always planned. It's your time to retire and deal with that money that I've given you over the years uh, for doing what you did for us. It's very much the minor mem partner in this operation. Yeah, what I really enjoyed about this piece was the fact that Micro is challenging the way that Frank does things. Operation mm-hmm. Morty was all about just cloning Morty's phone to follow him to get it, and that was fantastic. That yeah. would not happen without Micro. Frank would have killed, well, he says it, he just he would have just killed Morty. Um, and this being too smart, but mm-hmm. actually this smart leads to a greater good, which is obviously the ending of this episode. Because nothing would have been accomplished if they'd just killed Morty. There would have been no next step after that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the, the, the bit I'm enjoying. It gives us two fantastic scenes, one with uh, Frank and Micro when they're laying out their plans about infiltrating the base and the fact that Michael's able to say that yeah he entertains every Saturday like mm-hmm. clockwork blah 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 and I thought it was about interrogating um if we hadn't have seen the phone bit it would have it would I thought okay Frank's just gonna mm-hmm. beat him beat the information out of him but no it was it was a planned ploy and then we get this fantastic kind of uh, fight scene, I suppose. I, I'm not sure what way to kind of describe it, where Frank throws the smoke grenades, and I was like, "Oh, flashbangs! No smoke grenades!" And we get Frank t- showing again his skills as the Punisher, taking the guys out with their red dots. Yeah, that was awesome. And then the, the, taking the, the last submachine gun, where we see Billy is like trained on it, and he goes, "Oh, Billy figures out what he's doing." And then Frank has just placed the, the submachine gun with the thing on yeah. its side on the table. 
and it was just so smart. fantastic. So I well really put together. Yeah, I have to call out Frank for one of the conversations he has with uh, with Micro, though. Uh, it kind of made me smile a little bit because I called, about, called it out in the podcast about why he killed all the members of the team that was sent out to kill Gunnar Henderson. Um, since they were all doing exactly the same job that Frank did when he was working for uh, Agent Orange back in, in Kandahar, this time he has a conversation with Micro where he goes, I'm not going to kill any of these guys because they're just doing their job. What makes them different from, from this one? Well, they cover it with Dinah saying it was a death squad sent in to, to take care of Gunner and Frank. So when you call them a death squad, that sounds much more like a private army owned by Agent Orange. They're not US military soldiers. These are people that are knowing, know exactly what they're doing and know it's wrong. So that, that kind of excuses Frank for yeah. killing them back in episode four, right? Yeah, I definitely can see that distinction now that it's laid out because mm-hmm. there is that moment when Frank is escaping where he's in the tunnel and there's the guard and, you know, ultimately has that conversation mm-hmm. uh, about whether he should kill this soldier or not. He doesn't want to, but if he stands in his way, I think he would have done something, maybe a bullet to the leg, a bullet to the shoulder, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, whereas, yes, in the woods, that was a fight for his life and mm-hmm. for his survival because their intention was to kill him and Gunner. Uh, well, at least Gunner and anyone else who was there. Yeah. This guy in the corridor, his intention is to patrol that and make it safe. And he wants to make sure that only the people he needs to actually involve in this plan are the people that are involved. Yeah. I mean, that fight in with all the smoke and everything was really, really good. Uh, Chris, I completely agree. I, I loved all the laser sights. I loved how Frank just sort of pulled them down. You see them crumple in the smoke. And then, you know, he gets the better of Russo here. Yeah, and then you have, you know, Frank, I think, delivers a shot to um, Russo's shoulder. Um, I'm not entirely sure because later on, I don't really see that Russo is kind of uh, struggling with his shoulder. Um, And I think even he might get a shot off on on Frank as well. But ultimately, Frank comes out on top at, at this engagement and... He still doesn't know that it is uh, Russell. Billy is still, you know, kind of hidden from view in that sense. I know he's definitely shooting the ground around what turns out to be Russo saying, don't get up. Uh, it definitely has a couple of shots around it. But yeah, it's quite difficult to tell when everybody's wearing the same uniform in the uh, in the location, in smoke, uh, filled room as well. Definitely. But Operation Morsi does lead to that final wow moment. You know, our fourth point here uh, with Rawlins uh, at his at his safe house, um, one of the CIA mansions um, that he's using. And, you know, it's a fantastic sequence where you have frank you know looking through the windows through the sniper rifle after you know they've tracked morty's phone i just loved it i i I thought you know you you get his one batch two batch saying and i am absolutely sure i'm convinced even though i don't know because i haven't read it that that image of rawlins with the 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 cracked bulletproof glass uh, right in the spot where the bullet would have gone through his forehead. Mm-hmm. It must be straight from a comic. <laughs> I'm absolutely convinced. It was such uh, an iconic 
a shot there mm-hmm. and and then the realization as all the lights go up uh the floodlights on the house and the sirens um i thought that was really exceptional i love um, how the cameras just held there as well as the bullet drops from the glass to the ground showing yet yeah, this is absolutely a bulletproof glass it's so smart as well because this kind of thing happens in almost every movie where you have the protagonist finally having his moment to take out the villain and they usually do something like a henchman comes over and kicks him out of the way and then they have a, f- a fight and he's lost his chance. This is perfect. Frank gets his opportunity. He takes his shot. But it's bulletproof glass. Of course it would be. This is a safe house. This is where people are protected. This is where the high-ranking officers of the military and of the FBI are stationed. Of course you're going to have bulletproof glass. But I've never seen it before. Why have I not seen that before in other films and other stories? Yeah, I, I have to tip my hat to Andy Goddard on this this for directing it this way the the that shot as john said where we see the, the bullet hit the glass and then just uh agent iron drawn standing behind it was beautifully framed beautifully framed mm-hmm. i actually thought this was going to happen though i didn't think we were going to get the bulletproof gas because i i actually thought for a second rollins was not our seminal bad guy for this we were, we've mm-hmm. reached the halfway point. I thought they were going to pull a Luke Cage on us. And yep. that's exactly how I would have done it if that was the case. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I didn't, now I'm interested. How are you going to do this? So potentially my thought of being Rollins being just part one and someone else being the part two, that's gone now, maybe, or unless they'll get to mm-hmm. episode eight. And now the next literally opening scene is Frank killing. <laughs> Rollins and I'm like well that's okay my last point was gone completely um, <laughs> they're taking a lot of these what you would consider standard military plot lines shots and slightly tweaking them uh, to be MCU to be the Netflix that they are like what a way to end the episode um, mm-hmm. but again we actually get more than that we get this Rollins Morty Russo conversation explaining the, themselves and why what they're doing and kind of why they didn't bring Morty into the fold, yada, yada, yada. And we get that great line from Russo going, like, your balls would have been wired to the car battery if we hadn't have saved you. Actually, you'd probably have liked that. Uh, <laughs> like, that, that's just uh, something you would not get away with on standard terrestrial cable TV. Absolutely. Um, and and as Morty says, Russo shouldn't be able to get away with this either. He's a lower ranking official in the army. So he's still someone that's lower ranking and shouldn't be able to speak to Morty like that. But because of the confidence that's been given by being involved in this project with Rollins, he is totally slagging off Morty at every opportunity he has. I wonder about the impact that this has on the base that Morty was involved in. Did they all know that he liked a bit of S&M on a Saturday night and they had to protect the base while he was incommunicado for an hour or so. Did everybody in the base know about this? It's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a weird one for Morty. Now it doesn't really matter anymore, of course. But um, but I do like these scenes between Rollins and Morty and Russo. They're really, it's really interesting seeing the balance of power shift. You would always expect that people who are all at the same level in in the army, all captains, they would all treat each other the same way. And then Russo has been brought into the fold here and it's just being, again cheeky russo with everyone around him yeah i mean it's a it's a really good uneasy alliance i think played incredibly well you know they hang morty out to dry really as bait here uh, and okay he doesn't get killed and maybe that's more luck 
But, you know, Morty, I think, kind of realizes, you know, you screwed with me here. You really did. Then, ultimately, you know, with Morty's part in the plan done, they kill him uh, and plant mm-hmm. his body with the the mistress who was there as well, which they had made sure was at his home because, you know, she screams out, he's here, he's here. You know, she was part of their plan. So, and they killed her, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that there's no loose ends, absolutely no loose ends. You know, mm-hmm. this is uncompromising, vicious stuff that these three and now these two and what was a four have been involved in. And also just quickly coming back to, you know, the shots from, from Frank Castle. Mm-hmm. I loved Roland's reaction. I loved his shock jerk back, even though I suspect he knew that it was coming or that an attack at least was, was going to be coming. I don't think he thought maybe it would be that close to him. And I just thought his reaction there where he's stirring out onto the floodlit sort of gardens of this safe house through the cracked glass um i thought it was really really good you know uh, you but you see the little bit of panic in him the shock of the the bullet hitting um i played really really well um so yeah i mean the, these three this this evil triangle of rollins morty and russo uh it is really good i think mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it even though now it's down to a twosome yeah and that yeah. that twosome really is the interesting point for me um, I thought Morty was very much because of who he is, being the commander of a base, major captain. I'm not quite sure which of his his um, designation, but having him there and then just them handily killing him, I'm like, this is where it's interesting. It's a no holds barred, take no prisoners. Raleigh and Russo are cleaning up. This is we will slowly clear the ranks of their own guys to draw out Frank. This will definitely be placed on Frank. Like mm-hmm. I, I've been Absolutely. trying to think and I, I went back, what did Frank touch or his blood or something will be placed there and it will make, be made to look like Frank did this. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm like, okay, I want to see how they pin this on Frank. I'm interested to see what more they do but I thought it was a an apt way for them to kill off the character of Morty. Um, it was like we got a nice introduction to his darker side, if you will, um, mm-hmm. or his, uh, his slight darker urges, and then having the the prostitute being killed in the bed, and I'm assuming it's going to be made to look like a robbery gone wrong or something like because. The way Russo guts Morty in this, it's like, mm. this looks painful and this looks violent. And I'm like, okay, that's going to be interesting. I wish they had have explained, it's probably in deleted scene somewhere, that the mistress being working for Russo, her screaming, he's here, he's here. And that being the, the trigger bit. I, I wish they had have, like seen more of that. In terms okay. of like, just it would have been nice to see the plant, how they decided to plant her, why, and then see her going, oh, my job's done. And then Russo killing her and putting her in the bed. It did feel like Morty trusted her from the moment that we see them at dinner. He pours out wine for her and he goes, it's your favorite. So this this seems like a regular engagement that he has with her. So it feels like Russo pulled her over to the side and says, Saturday night, this is going down and you're going to be there and you need to tell us 
when he arrives effectively so um doesn't seem to be a huge amount more than that but she's not she's not only hired for this specific mission is what it looks like it looks like she's the regular partner of morty yeah it's just it isn't i, I would like to see russo using his charm to go okay you need to tell us and then flipping that charm again when he kills her mm. but again it does make it much worse that she's been killed because she was involved yes in yeah like as well, I loved uh, Russo's Assassin's Creed knife that flicks out from uh, from his his uh, cuffs. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool. And I do wonder, you know, there has just been an attack on a CIA safe house. You know, we've seen uh, in a couple of episodes previously Rawlins with the director of the CIA. Mm-hmm. You know, is this going to have some kind of consequences there? You know, because there's very much that that leading question is: there's nothing here that will come and bite you on uh, the ass when I nominate you to be deputy director. Mm. But you've just had a full-on assault of a CIA safe house. You know, is that going to be able to be covered up? You know, does does Rawlins surround himself with people who are loyal to him? I suspect that is the case, given he can send a death squad on U.S. soil. Yes, it'll be really interesting to see how this possibly exposes Rawlins with um, the director of the CIA and and how it links into that smaller storyline. You know, does it have any implications for uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantanio's character there? And because it is, it's an attack on a government agency's safe house. Mm You know, can he keep this under wraps? I just wonder how will it go down between the two of them now? You know, there is this uneasy alliance, um, and I don't think there's too much love lost. You know, I, I really like this idea that Russo really forces to Rollins that he saved his face. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in both literally and metaphorically uh, from Frank, uh, and that you know Frank for Rollins is the person that really brought him down a peg or two, showed him he wasn't the this this kingpin in the CIA, uh, that he, he could quite easily have just been beaten to death by Frank at that moment. Mm-hmm. But gentlemen, uh, let's move on to our fifth and final point. Uh, the, the other storyline, which I'm not quite sure how this is going to obviously feed in, but it's uh, Lewis. And boy, is the mm-hmm. pressure building up. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that was a massive shock for me to see him cooking up his own pressure cooker bomb uh, like that. I mean, I knew he was on the ropes. I knew he was um, struggling. He'd obviously just killed someone. But you, like, he is so down in his own dark world. Um, like, Who is this going to be aimed at? Is it Anvil? Is it just the courthouse, for example, that he was outside? You know, who is he gonna target this this homemade nail bomb at and i mean again i really feel for his father as well trying he's trying to help him you know he really is trying to give him different ways of how to see things and i'm wondering did lewis really take his father's advice the wrong way with uh that analogy with cassius clay in the boxing ring yeah, I think I mentioned in our last episode that every person that is around Lewis just doesn't really know how to give him the right piece of information. They're all trying. Everybody's trying their best. They're all looking for analogies that are similar to wartime. They're all saying, you know, you're at one battle, pick yourself up and get yourself ready for the next battle. Change your tactics. You're going about it the wrong way. 
have have you given up? Have you surrendered kind of thing? And he's taking all of this up to mean he needs to go back into another battle, another war. Does he now become a terrorist? Is this Frank's next villain? Does he have to take him out because he's going to now plant that bomb in a public area to draw some light on what's happened to him and what's and what he's been doing? Is this bomb going to be used against the people that are in the therapy session because he feels what O'Connor did to him by lying to him is the same thing that the other people around him are doing? Is the same thing that Curtis did by shutting him out of that job in Anvil? Again, as you say, John, will he bring it to Anvil and start trying to shut down that organization by planting a bomb there? It's all about to blow up this pressure that's inside him. It's definitely the right metaphor that the writers used in this episode to have him building a bomb out of a pressure cooker because that's what the world is doing to the pressure cooker that is Lewis. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the storyline. Um, and I think I've mentioned before, it's just taking its time and I'm not sure where it's going uh, in terms of the greater storyline, if you know what I mean. As I said, like maybe he's the mirror opposite of Frank in that he mm. is... Frank could have gone down that path when he returned as well. It's just really interesting. Personally, I think the bomb was... I thought originally... It was just to destroy the evidence of the house and the murder. So he was going to just basically try and explode the place and make it look like something had happened. And that way they couldn't find when the body is that torn asunder, they wouldn't be able to find the evidence of the murder. Yeah. But now that you say the courthouse, things like that, uh, Anvil, I'm like, okay, maybe that is where they're going with it. That could Mm. be interesting. As I say, I think it's just him taking the wrong advice from his father or the wrong message from his father's advice. It is that thing of change up your tactics and you'll win the war. And it's like, uh oh, don't tell him to change up his tactics. That's a bit of more military advice. That's telling him to go out and do something to innocent people, possibly. I have to also say, we've said it almost every episode. This character of Lewis has been fantastic. But that moment with him standing in his bedroom with gun in mouth, I absolutely thought that was the end of the character. It was one of the most tense scenes I think I've had watching the show and there's been many tense scenes in the series so far. He's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, that I, I'm echoing what you say there about that scene. Like the seconds before where his hands are shaking um, mm. and like you see him kind of pacing back and forth. The look on the father's face as he's walking down the stairs and sees the gun in his son's pants tucked into the back. Like you, mm. you can see the son is on edge. The father doesn't even ask about the gut wound. I know. He goes, where's your shirt? It's like, uh, how about the big big gaping hole in the side of his body? Um, So that was a slight over um, a misstep, if you will, because I I thought that would have been a nice one kind of interaction. But I think his his father is trying to step on eggshells around him. I think he's trying not to go for those questions that might lead into an argument with his son because he knows how. Yeah, I, pressurized I, he is. I think you really sense that with with his dad here. But the guy who's playing his father is doing a really good job, you know, because he's trying to be a support. He's trying to be a crutch. He's trying to give him advice. You know, he's going from take these pills, they'll help you sleep, to trying to bring in, you know, Cassius Clay, second reference to the great boxer, um, as some kind of analogy to help um, Lewis change up his life not his fight in a sense mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's taken the wrong way by by lewis but you know i i think you're right it, it is about on eggshells around lewis for yeah. his dad and i think it's being played really well um by by the actor yeah daniel weber is the the actor and i'm really interested to see where further 
they this character can go. There's something about him that really reminds me of the British actor Jack O'Connell. Um, I don't know whether you've seen him in, in things like Eaton Lake. He's this this actor that flips on a dime, and he just seems violent just by looking at him. You know, you you think there's nothing. If I say hello, good morning to him, he looks like he's going to knife you. And there's something about Daniel Weber in this series that he just feels like that as well. He feels like he's so tense and so wrapped up in himself that he could just flip on you in a second. I really like that. It's a totally right right character to have in this part, the right actor to have in this part. Now, the one thing I will say is poor Daniel did star in Home and Away, which is an Australian soap opera, uh, not known for its deep uh, storylines and uh, acting chops, although we did get some of our Thor, uh, Marvel's Thor did come from this. Um, so I, I will, yeah, I won't yeah. hold it completely against him, but, um, mm-hmm. I really want, I really like this ca- this actor. I really want to see him do more. Uh-huh. Hopefully they maybe don't kill this character off. And if they do, maybe we will have this actor elsewhere in the overall MCU. Uh, cause I do like that, as you said, that, that flip on a dime. Yeah. That spark of insanity. Just fires Definitely. and then that's it. Uh, but gentlemen, I believe that is the end of our five points. Mm-hmm. Do we have any notes about this episode? Just simply that, you know, we get our second Cassius Clay reference here. We had Cassius the goat uh, and now we have Lewis's father using Cassius Clay in that iconic fight a- against George Foreman Grill um, <laughs> with about how he changed up his tactics, you know, kept Foreman uh, reaching, 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 fighting, 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 wore him down to the point where Cassius could then use um, his power uh, and, and his longevity to then knock down the George Foreman grill. Yeah, it was the whole... It was the Homer Simpson school of boxing, allowing to punch you for as long as you possibly can until they tire themselves out and then hit them and knock them down. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I love it. The only other note we, we said we were moving from book watch to food watch. This week's food was pizza. Pizza. <laughs> Cold pizza. Thank you, uh, Sesame Street. Derek. Pizza. No problem. Pizza. Um, for myself, I have two. One which is um, just... I, again, useless facts in my brain tells me this. Um, bug, bugs in government buildings in the US, they are regularly sweeped, um, for such things. So that really shouldn't, that is, it's a nice plot device, but really wouldn't happen in real life. I don't know how I know this. It's just wow. Unless the people that are bugging you are a leading member of the CIA. Potentially. I'll give you that, mm-hmm. but. And it okay. depends who's doing the bug hunting sweep. Is it a man within the circle? Mm-mm. True, true. Um, but I guess time will tell because um, mm-hmm. hopefully Diana gets a bit crazy in this. And finally, um, although we did not get an intimate sex scene in this episode, we did get a beautiful, quite interesting take on another form of love, which is BDSM. Well, hey, there we go. Thank you, Marvel Netflix punisher for bringing in a different form of punishment there we are (laughs) and of course to our listeners to me that image of rollins behind the cracked glass does look iconic to me um i'm gonna check again but if any of you guys have any uh maybe insights in that you know is it from a comic cover from a comic panel or am i just wishful thinking Mm. um please uh send in any thoughts 
So, Derek, with that, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? Another high defend for me. This is this is absolutely my type of series. Um, this is every episode now is building and building and getting better and getting better from a very strong starting point um, in episode two <laughs> to this point in episode seven that we're that we're have created a great story that I'm really enjoying every single episode we watch. The actors are acting out of their socks and doing a great job. I like everybody in this episode and in, in this show. Uh, really, really enjoying it. So very high defend from me. And John, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? Yes, I do. I do defend. I'm going to give you a shocker, and that's five cables wired to a car battery out of five. (laughs) Yes, it is a really good episode. This has been my favorite so far. Um, I loved... Um, seeing the Rawlins-Morty-Russo triangle, that uneasy alliance. I really like the fact that Dina and Stein really start to get down dirty in this in this story. They're, they're being tapped, you know, their office is bugged, and I really uh, like to see how they, they come on uh, and, and sort of insert themselves with within this bigger picture between Rawlins, Russo uh, and Frank. I like that Russo is still, you know, undiscovered by Frank. Uh, I think how Russo just changes his, his persona, his chameleon-like appearance. He's so confident, you know, how is this going to work out? It's been really good to see Frank and Micro going after Morty Bennett. That interaction there, you know, Frank wants to be straight down the line, probably pop a bullet between the eyes. Uh, Micro really saying, let's be smart about this. But mm-hmm. they're also dealing with smart people. And so despite the best intentions, I think they're waiting for them ultimately. Uh, that sniper rifle, you know, Rawlins in the crosshairs, just fantastic. Really Awesome. And I think Lewis's storyline, you know, builds and builds and builds to a really disturbing picture of what can happen. Uh, Again, I'm still, like from the previous episode, I really want to know. Is this a you know a parallel story, or will it interconnect with the the main Punisher story? And I really hope it does actually. Yeah. Um. But it'll be interesting if it does and how it does it. So yeah, a complete defend from me. I absolutely love this episode. And finally, Chris, do you defend this episode of the Punisher? I do. The pacing. I'm enjoying it now. The how would you call it? Menage a trois. Between um, Rollins, Morty, Russo is it was a fun, uneasy alliance that we really got to see, and we saw the fruits of that alliance, or should I say, the uh, two bloody bodies in a apartment of that alliance. Mm-hmm. I'm still questioning how Lewis' storyline kind of is this just is this just a kind of auxiliary storyline just to show you. War, yada, yada, yada. Is it like a commentary or is it actually directly involved? And I'm, will Russo go and take, uh, Lewis under his wing in order to make him again the anti Frank? It's just fun. The fighting that we get within Morty's office, I really enjoyed that. That is for me the daredevil blacked out room taking the one man down at a time mm. uh, really reminded me of that. And I enjoyed that. That's the, the action part I really wanted to see. The change in dynamic between Micro and 
Frank in terms of Frank is now taking the advice, although he may not like it, of Micro. He's doing what Micro says in order to get the phone, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But then we get this touching scene with Frank in the escaping from the army base where he doesn't want to kill someone just for doing their job. And he's like, stand down, son, stand down. I thought that was, that was good. It was interesting. It really felt like comic book Punisher there, right? Really did. Exactly. Like the, the voice, the look, like I could see that as a panel where the, the shot is of Frank walking away, telling the kid to stand down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. So I do defend this episode. I really did think we were going to get a mid-season uh, end of Rollins with Russo rising or someone else rising in his place. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we'd get such as Luke Cage, yada, yada, where they change up the, the, the body midway through. But they didn't. Now, coming into episode eight, am I going to be completely destroyed and go, yep, yeah, well, he, Frank just runs in, shoots him with something else, and then it's over. Uh, <laughs> let's wait and see. I'm dying to find out. But I do defend this episode, and uh, I want to see where it goes the rest of the season. Absolutely. I think it's time to get on some feedback. If you want to send in your thoughts about any of the episodes, all you need to do is email us at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com or pop on over to our website at defenderstvpodcast.com and leave us a voicemail. Uh, you can also join us over on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash defenderstvpodcast. Yeah, our first bit of Facebook feedback comes through from Salim Akizla. Uh, I'm loving the game of chess between Agent Orange, Russo, and Frank and Micro. Yeah, it really was a game of chess. You know, there's Frank and Micro thinking that they're being smart, at least Micro does. Frank really, you know, he just wants to go over and knock that king out. Uh, uh, over on its side but micro is is playing the long game here and certainly um he is matched by uh, agent orange here in russo so it, it's really intriguing uh, and it'll be great to see how it, it comes and moves forward i think for episode eight absolutely yeah, yeah our next piece of feedback comes from christine hall who says i'm finding myself fascinated and repulsed by the extreme contrast of code between lewis and castle war is hell Coming home is hell. And trying to make sense of what you went through is awful, especially if it was what you went through was all of that. Also waiting to see if Lewis was going to pull that trigger was the most intense scene so far this season. Just wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. can't agree more. It, that We talked about that scene. It was just fantastic. Gut-wrenching, if you will, because you no one knew what was going to happen. But then... As you say, this contrast of code between Lewis and Castle. I'm hoping it's more than that. Um, I really hope it will pull into the main, main storyline. But actually, that's a nice way of saying it, which is these are two men who have seen some terrible things and what they went through was especially horrific and they're dealing with it in different ways. Absolutely, yes. Thanks so much for that feedback, Kristen. Uh, really good to hear from you. Kristen's one of my uh, one of my fellow fans of uh, the Walking Dead cast, one of my favorite podcasts. So great to have her over with us in this podcast. Yeah, well. thank you so much, Kristen. And also to Salim as well for, for the Facebook messages. Absolutely. There's one thing I completely forgot to mention in our discussions in the last two episodes about Billy Russo and Frank Castle sitting down together. That moment where they sit down and have that conversation. It's amazing how young these two characters are. And to say that they've done eight years of tours together in the army it's another thing about the armed forces and what it does to youth. Like these, these guys must have joined up when they were early twenties. If they're 
now done eight years in the army and they're out and back home. I know what I was like in my 20s and I certainly couldn't have handled the things that they have gone through getting back. And Lewis is another one of those characters, another character who's really, really young after going through all that he's experienced in war in the armed forces. So it's another one of those things that just kind of strikes you how young all of these actors are portraying these parts and what they've experienced in their lives in in, in the army. Oh, definitely. Yeah, really agree. I think it's going to be an interesting... It's going to be an interesting talking point at the end of the season. Mm. What these men went through and, again, the dichotomy of how people deal with it. Um, because, yeah, I know myself in the 20s too. Mm-hmm. Could not do that. <laughs> but, gentlemen, I think that wraps up our episode for now. And, of course, fellow Defenders, if you want to be involved and give us feedback, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV podcast and go to any of our spoiler posts and leave us your feedback there. Why not come over to Twitter and tweet us at DefendersCast or, hell, go to DefendersTVPodcast.com and leave us a small voicemail so you too can hear your dulcet tones in this section. Absolutely. Please come on over and join us on Apple Podcasts google play or any other good or evil podcast catcher and if you're not sure which you can head over to defenders tv podcast and go to the subscribe section where you can choose which podcast catcher you want to uh, listen to us through please subscribe rate us and leave a review we'll be back with our review of the punisher episode 8 cold steel next friday the 29th of december and of course every week from then on thank you so much for listening and happy holidays Yes, absolutely. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, everyone. I'm going to go off and practice my blue steel look, I think. Uh, But thank you, as always, for listening. And, of course, we'll speak with you again soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Another uh, another great, fun year uh, of Defenders TV podcast almost over. Thanks for sticking with us, and thanks for enjoying the podcast. We'll be back with you before the new year with our next episode. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Yes, thank you very much for listening to us. I'm off to get my Christmas present, which was a car battery and two cables. (laughs) See you next week. Bye. But nonetheless, I wonder um, where that might tie in back to this sort of minor storyline with Mary Tassarantino um, and so on, you know? Mary Tassarantino. <laughs> That's a brand new name for her. <laughs> where that will tie up Mary, Mary Elizabeth <laughs> Master Antonio. <laughs> I know it's a lot too many syllables, but I can't just take them all out. <laughs> We're just going to call you Kajans in, in future, Chris. I'm going to call her Frank, too. Um, I just wonder how that will, you know, link back to Mary Elizabeth Tastrantino. I don't know why I'm calling her Tash. I don't know. Master Antonio. Master. And I'm just wondering where that will tie back with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantanio. Master Antonio. Master Antonio. Master Antonio. Um, you know, and and that kind of subplot. It'd be really interesting. 
it's going to be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a bit from the first one. Yeah, a bit, bit from the, the second. second one. Put them all together. So sorry. If you want to say it again. Yeah, no, it's like Vincent D'Onofrio again. No, you're good. No. See, it rhymes with D'Onofrio. Master Antonio. <laughs>